The previous couple of Mishnahs discussed the brachas of Malchus, Zichronus, and Shofras, which discuss Hashem's kingship, and that which Hashem remembers, and the Shofar upsukim to do with those. And this Mishnah continues the discussion of the davening on Rosh Hashanah. Now, ideally, mitzvahs which should be, f- be performed on a particular day, if there's a particular time limit on a mitzvah, it should be performed as early as possible. There's a rules, reason, makdimila mitzvahs, that one should perform mitzvahs as early and as soon as possible. That shows a particular excitement for the mitzvah. And therefore, one would have thought that the shofar and the malchus, the and shofaris, that should all be mentioned in the shachris davening, and we shouldn't wait all the way until musaf to do so. However, says the Mishnah, one who davens as the chazan in front of the Oren Hakodesh, he leads the davening on the Yom Tov of Rosh Hashanah. Hasheni, the second one to lead the davening that day, meaning the one who leads musaf, not shachris, during the musaf davening maskia. They blow the shofar, and we're going to understand that the psukim of Malchus, Chinus, and Shofaris are also said at Musaf, because as we saw, the shofar is blown at the end of each of these three sections. And the reason why we wait until Musaf is because there is a dangerous time in the history of the Jewish people when we weren't necessarily allowed to keep mitzvahs, and the enemy would know on Rosh Hashanah that we have lots of mitzvahs to keep. So they would see everyone going into the shul, and they would listen out for the shofar, and they would use that as an excuse, it would, might, might have sounded like a call for war, and they would cause trouble for the Jews. And because of that, we started to blow the shofar only in Musaf, once the enemy had been listening in and didn't hear anything throughout the whole of Shachris, so by the time it reaches Musaf, they would have left already, and that's when we would be able to blow the shofar. Now, on Rosh Hashanah itself, Halal is not recited, although it's considered to be a Yom Tov. Since it's also a day of judgment, it is not appropriate to start singing Halal and songs of joy and praise on the day that somebody is judged. We have to show that we really believe that we are being judged that day. But the Mishnah goes a bit sidetracked and discusses a Yom Tov where one does say Halel, or Vashasa Halel. And at the time that one does say Halel, Horushan Makresa Halel, the Chazan for the first prayer of that day, Shachris, he would continue to daven Halel for everybody. And the custom in those days was that one person would say Halel, and everybody would listen and fulfill their obligation by hearing the Halel from the Chazan. Perhaps they would answer Halleluka at the end of each phrase, but the main part of Halel would be said by the Chazan only. And here, the reason for delaying the shofar does not apply over here, and therefore it is said at the earliest opportunity, which is at the end of the shacharis prayer. Mishlechet says a general rule of asei doichelosase, that a positive mitzvah to do something overrides a negative mitzvah. So if the Torah says you need to do something, and the only way you could do it is by violating a different avera, the rule is that you can violate that avera in order to perform the mitzvah. Now, if the only way to blow a shofar on Rosh Hashanah is by violating Yom Tov, in that case it will be forbidden to blow the shofar, since violating Yom Tov is not only a leisaseh, it's not only an avera, but you're also violating an asay, a positive mitzvah of resting on Yom Tov. So the positive mitzvah of hearing the shofar does not override both the positive and negative mitzvahs of keeping Yom Tov. The point of this mission is to show us that even if the prohibition of Yom Tov is only with Rabbanon, so now you've got the positive mitzvah with the Eraisa of blowing the shofar, and a negative mitzvah with Rabbanon. So we would have thought that certainly you should blow the shofar. Nevertheless, this Mishnah will teach us that the Rabbanon were especially strict with regards to prohibitions of Shabbos and Yom Tov, such that they are viewed as being on the level of a mid prohibition, as if you are violating Yom Tov mid and as such, you'll be forbidden to do so even in order to hear the shofar.
And so the Mishnah says, Shoifos Rosh Hashanah, the Shoifos of Rosh Hashanah, Imavir Nalavis Atchum, it is forbidden to travel beyond the Tchum Shabbos, which is the maximum distance of 2,000 Amas from one city, beyond which it is forbidden Mijabonon to travel on Shabbos or Yom Tov. So if the only Shoifos available is beyond his Tchum, even though it's only forbidden Mijabonon to travel there, one may nevertheless not travel there, even if he will not be able to fulfill the mitzvah, they were fakhrin olavas hagal. It's forbidden to uncover a pile of stones of rubble, which is on top of a shofar, even if it's the only way you'll be able to hear a shofar. It would mean violating the prohibition midrabonon of mukta, of moving things which are, not, which are not designated for Shabbos use. So the rubble is not designated for any use on Shabbos, and therefore it's forbidden to move it. Midrabonon. And one cannot climb a tree in order to get the shofar. That's forbidden midrabonon in case you come to break off a branch. One cannot ride an animal in order to obtain a shofar, if let's say he can't walk. It's forbidden to ride an animal on Shabbos or Yom Tov, in case one comes to break off a stick from a tree, in order to use it to guide or hit to hit the animal. It's forbidden to swim in the water, in order to perhaps cross a river in order to get a shofar. It's forbidden to swim on Yom Tov, in case one comes to build a raft. It's forbidden to cut the actual shofar off the animal, to cut the horn off, being whether you use a tool, which would mean it's only forbidden midyabonon, and that would be a tool which is not regularly used to cut horns off an animal, so therefore it would only be forbidden midyabonon. Even in that case, you would not be able to cut the horn off, and of course, if it requires violating a midyabonon prohibition, then all the more so would be forbidden to cut the horns off the animal. Now the same would apply if you already cut the horns off the animal, but it still requires a bit more cutting in order to use it as a shofar. That would also be forbidden mid or mid if you do it in an irregular way, because it's considered to be repairing a utensil, or even creating a utensil, creating a new use for it. However, if let's say the shofar could be used, and you are able to produce a sound with the shofar, however, it's not so clear, and you want to clear it out with some liquid. Says the Mishnah, If one wants to put some water or wine through the shofar, he may do so, he can put it in there. Since he would be able to use the shofar without adding that water or wine, so the water or wine is not considered to be repairing the utensil, repairing the shofar. It's making it a better quality sound and easier to use. However, since you could use it without doing so, it is permitted to do so as it does not come under the category of repairing a utensil. Now the halacha is, as we learned earlier on in the Masechta, if Rosh Hashanah falls on a Shabbos, then with Jabonon it's forbidden to blow the shofar, in case one comes to carry it out into a public domain which would be forbidden with the Eraisa. However, even when Rosh Hashanah falls on a Shabbos, a Ma'akvinus one does not need to stop children from blowing the shofar and practicing blowing the shofar and playing with it. And not only that, one can even busy himself with the children and play with them until they learn how to blow the shofar themselves. That doesn't necessarily mean that the adults are allowed to blow the shofar themselves, but it means that they can sort of show their children how to do it and to totally allow the children to continue playing with the shofar. And we are not concerned that that will lead somebody to carry it out into a public domain. That's only a concern if you have a mitzvah to blow the shofar. So you might take the shofar to an expert or somebody to blow the shofar for you. But here where you have no mitzvah, you're only allowing the children to play with the shofar. We are not concerned that you will come to carry it out into a public domain. Now while we're on the topic, says the Mishnah of Asik, one who is busying himself 
with blowing the shofar, but he is not doing so in order to fulfill the obligation. Perhaps he's practicing, perhaps he's just playing around, making sounds with the shofar, he has not fulfilled his obligation of hearing the shofar, even if he does this on Rosh Hashanah. And similarly, the Hashemiah Mitzasek, one who hears the shofar sound from somebody who is blowing it, just to busy himself with it, but not with the intention to fulfill the mitzvah, Loyotza, he has also not fulfilled his obligation. The reason being, mitzvah tzrichis kavana. In order to fulfill a mitzvah, one has to intend to do so. And the Mishnah is adding that if the person who is doing the act of the mitzvah, the person who is blowing the shofar, if he doesn't have the intention of fulfilling the mitzvah, or of blowing it for other people to fulfill the mitzvah, then even if the person who hears it has the intention, that is not enough, rather both of them need to have the intention that the shofar is being blown for the sake of fulfilling the mitzvah. Mr. Tess, Rosh Hashanah is known as Yom Teruah in the Torah. Yom Teruah means the day of blowing of the Teruah, and the Torah uses this phrase of Teruah three times, and we learn from there that a Teruah sound needs to be blown three times on Rosh Hashanah. That is the Mitzvah of Shafar. Now it is also learned from Pesukim that before each of these Teruah sounds, a Tekiah also needs to be sounded. A Tekiah is one long blast, so before and after each Teruah, a Tekiah needs to be blown. Now what exactly a Teruah is and how the sound is will be elaborated upon in this Mishnah. But first the Mishnah tells us that Seder Tekiah is the order of the blowings of the Shofar and Rosh Hashanah is Sholesh, three times, three sets, shall Sholesh Sholesh, of three blasts each. So that means that you've got to have three Teruahs, and each Teruah also has a Tekiah before and after it. So you end up blowing nine times, and that's Tekiah, Teruah, Tekiah, three times. Shir Tekiah, the amount, the measurement of a Tekiah, the one longer blow is Kesholesh Teruahs. It's like three Teruahs, and the way we're going to understand this is that it really means that the length which all of the Tekiahs put together, all six blasts of a Tekiah, the length of six Tekiah blasts is like the three Teruah blasts, which means that each Tekiah lasts for half of the time that a Teruah lasts for. Others learn that it lasts for the same time, and the missionary is saying that three Tekiahs are like three Teruahs, but we'll understand for now that a Tekiah is half the length of a Teruah. Now what is a Teruah? Says the Mishnah, Shir Teruah. The measurement of the Teruah blast is Kesholish Yabavos, which literally means like three whimpers. Just like when somebody is whimpering and crying. It's often very short sounds, but a few of them one after the other. So a Teruah is like three whimpers one after the other. Now the simple understanding of the Mishnah is that a Teruah is made up of three shorter blasts. And that's what we nowadays know as a Shavarim, where the Shofar is blown three times. However, others understand that each Yabava, each whimpering sound, is itself made up of three. It's split into three. So three Yabavas is actually nine very short sounds, and that's what we know as a Teruah. Alright, continues the Mishnah, Tokab if one blew the first takia of one of the sets of three, remember there are three sets of takia, teruah, takia. So somebody blew a takia for the first time, and then he blew the teruah, and when it came to the second takia, the takia which comes after the teruah, he prolonged the second blast of the takia for the length of what two takias would be. So however long one needs to make the takia last, he blew it for double that. The question is, can that be considered like two Tekiah blasts? Like the last one of the first set, 
and the first Akiah of the next set. Says the Mishnah, no, at the end of the day, it was only one blast, one longer blast, in Biyodi El Achas. It's only considered like one Takiyah, because the Torah requires nine blasts, or three sets of Takiyah, Teruah Takiyah, and this would not be considered to be two of them, only one. Now, as we saw earlier on in the Masechta, ideally the Shefa should be blown during Musaf, at the end of three of the middle brachas in Shemona Esrei. The Malchios, the Chronos, and Shefras. The mission discusses somebody, Mishabeirach, somebody who made the brachas of the Shemona Esrei of Musaf, but he did not have a Shefar available. And only V'acharkach, after he had finished davening Nisman Shefar, he managed to obtain a Shefar. Says the Mishnah, Taikea Umeria, Vusaikea Shalish Pa'amim. He should blow a Takiyah to Rotakiyah three times, just as he would have done during Musaf, at different parts of Shemona Esrei. So now he should just blow all three sets of Takiyah to Rotakiyah, all at one, even though ideally it should be done together with Shemona Esrei. If one has finished that, he can still blow the Shofar by itself and blow all of the blasts together. Now the Masechta ends off with a relatively unrelated law, and that is with regards to a chazan for a regular Shemona Esrei. The halacha is that as well as the chazan repeating the Shemona Esrei, he also says it silently himself, the regular silent Shemona Esrei. Now according to the Tanakhama, the reason why the chazan repeats the Shemona Esrei is in order that those people who don't know how to daven themselves, for example in those days where there were very few sidurim available, so people sort of had to daven by heart, so those who couldn't do so would fulfill their obligation by listening to the chazan repeat Shemona Esrei. However, says the Mishnah, just like the Chazan himself is obligated to recite Shemona Esrei silently first, so too each individual who knows and is able to say Shemona Esrei himself is obligated to do so himself and cannot rely on the Chazan's Shemona Esrei. However, Raman Gamliel, Raman Gamliel says, the Chazan can fulfill the obligation on behalf of the entire public, even those who are able to say Shemona Esrei themselves. And the reason why the Chazan has to say the silent Shemona Esrei first is not because his repetition is not considered to be a good Shemona Esrei. It's only so that he can see the Shemona Esrei first and practice it to himself and familiarize himself with the words before actually repeating it out loud. But the repetition is perfectly valid and therefore anybody according to Shemona Gamliel can rely on it to fulfill their obligation of Shemona Esrei. Solik Maseches Roshan Mazeltov. The subject matter of Maseches Tanes are fast days which are instituted when a tragedy or a very difficult situation strikes a particular community or the entire country. And for the most part, it discusses one-off fasts, not fasts which are fixed every single year and become part of the calendar, but fasts which, when the tragedy is there, in order to show that we realize that it's coming from Hashem, and the only way to stop it is by doing teshuvah and becoming better people and davening to Hashem. So we fast and have special prayers in davening, as the mission will describe, and the first parak focuses on fasts which are decreed when it does not rain. If it hasn't rained by a certain point in winter, so it appears that there is a drought, so again that's a sign that we need to do shiva, and therefore fasts would be decreed. Now the Omdiv of Sukkot is immediately before the winter season, and the Mishnah in the beginning of Masechus Rosh Hashanah taught us that on Sukkot we are judged on rain, how much rain there will be that year, and in fact the Gemara explains that the Arba Minim, the mitzvah of taking and shaking the four species on Sukkot, 
one of the reasons for doing so is in order to be a merit to have lots of rain, since the Araminium are dependent on rain in order to grow. So because of this, we begin to mention rain in Shemona Esrei on Sukkot, or perhaps right after Sukkot, as we're about to see in the Mishnah, but certainly around this time. Now there are two mentions of rain, during the winter at least, in Shemona Esrei. One is in the second bracha of Atogibur, and that is where we say, hageshem. He makes the wind blow and the rain come down, and that is not a request for rain, rather it's praising Hashem for rain. Later on, in the bracha of Baruch Oleinu, there we ask the Saint Talumotar, give dew and rain, that's a request for rain. This Mishnah focuses on Me'emos Amaz Kiring Kashomim. when do we begin to mention the power of rain, and that refers to Mashav Haruach Omerit HaGeshem. Rebbe Yezer, says beyond the Vereshit Shalachag, from Shachris on the first day of Sukkot, whereas Rebbe Yeshua, Rebbe Yeshua says beyond the Vereshit Shalachag, we start from the Musaf of the last day of Sukkot, which is actually referring to Shmini Atzeres, which sometimes is known as the last day of Sukkot, other times it's known as the, it's a new Yom Tov in itself. But the point is, you wait until after Sukkot, or the end of Sukkot, to begin mentioning the rain. Omar Abishua said to Rabbi Yezer in order to explain his opinion, Since rain is only a sign of a curse on Sukkot, because Hashem commands us to live in Sukkot, and if it rains, then that's a sign that Hashem does not want us to serve Him in that way. So certainly it's not good if it rains on Sukkot, so Lama Mazkir, why would we begin mentioning it on Sukkot? Amr Abeliezer, Abeliezer said to him, Even I didn't say that we should ask for rain on Sukkot, save the Saint Halumatar, but rather only to mention about how Hashem makes the wind blow and the rain come down during its season, which will begin right after Sukkot. So of course we wouldn't start asking for rain now because we don't want it to rain. But since we're being judged for rain, and Araminim, which are in order to merit rain, are shaken already from the beginning of Sukkot, so we should also start mentioning and praising Hashem for the rain already from then, but not yet to ask for rain. Oh my lord! But Rabbi Yeshua said back to Rabbi Yezer and Cain, if that's the case, you're differentiating between mentioning rain and not asking for it because you don't actually want it to rain right now, then you should always mention Mashavagrach in Shemana Esrei. Even in the summer, you should praise Hashem for the fact that in the winter, when it should rain, he makes it rain. But clearly that's not the case. And also mentioning Mashavagrach is dependent on the rainy season. So here too, you should wait until the actual rainy season after Sukkot after we no longer live in, live in the Sukkah, from Shemini Atzeres onwards, and only then should we begin mentioning Mashiv HaRuach.